0: Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider of ABA services across the country. I'm your host this week, Richie Plush, and I'm excited because I, got to, I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Amanda Kelly, who many of you know as Behavior Babe, and have a conversation about uh, her career and how she's really transformed the availability of services for families in Hawaii uh, really, really important conversation and uh, included a lot about um, legislation and acts that we can take moving forward. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Amanda Kelly, she's known as Behavior Babe. She earned her doctorate in behavior analysis from Simmons University and she has served on several boards including together for our Kike, the Hawaii Disability Rights Center, the Hawaii Association for Behavior Analysis. Her expertise has led to presentations all over the world about improving access to quality education and medical services. She was also the first licensed behavior analyst in the state of Hawaii and a wealth of information. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Amanda, thank you so much for being on our show. Welcome to today's episode.
0: Thank you for having me, Richie.
1: So I got to ask, you've long gone by the name of Behavior Babe. Tell us the story of how that came about.
0: (laughs) totally an interesting story that was somewhat, I mean, relatively unintentional. What it was was I started a website in 2008. I was um, out of work for a work-related injury, and I still had one good working arm. And I thought, how can I support teachers and parents and people who are reaching out to me? And I had gotten feedback from uh, my current employer that I really shouldn't be working (laughs) when I was out of work. So um, my frustration was that they weren't supporting those parents and teachers in my absence, and um, so I created a website. And I looked up how to do that online, uh, put some information there, and then gave passwords to people who wanted to access it. A year later, Twitter was, you know, emerging and entering the the world of social media platforms, and there was the dissemination of behavior analysis special interest group. so that's a group within um, uh, the Association for Behavior Analysis International, and we wanted to tweet about conferences, and we wanted to get information out to people who couldn't always afford or didn't have the time or the, the privilege to be at some of these events, and we wanted to put parameters about how to be respectful, you know, don't have your phone out the entire time. Now, mm-hmm. 12, you know, years later, everyone it's a very different yeah, uh, environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So right. our, our, you know, interest was you had to then have an avatar or screen name, right? And so some people were saying, like, misbehavior, M-I-S-S. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. And oh, I'm clever. like, man, all the good ones are going to be gone. <laughs> yeah, very clever. Um, and so I just started scrolling. You know, there was Corey Robertson, his behavior guy, and I was like behavior uh-huh. girl, behavior person, behavior, and I just settled on behavior babe for alliteration's sake. I I like how it sounded, <laughs> um, but I never thought that it would be another name that I would go by. I really just thought it would be some way for people to identify me on Twitter for this one opportunity. So. Um, then I just went with it. A couple of years after that, Facebook was uh, seemingly like a good platform for a public page. It had evolved more than some of the personal interactions mm-hmm. and I created that page, that place there on Facebook as a way to separate my personal life and my passion for behavior analysis, which is hilarious because there really is no separating those, but that's the right. relatively short version of behavior days.
1: No, that's great. That's It's such an interesting story. And I think so many clinicians and certainly people who are searching for information about applied behavior analysis come across Behavior Babe at some point. So I, I wanted to just hear that uh, from you. Thanks for sharing. But I, the thing I'm hearing is that you have this, this drive and this passion uh, to support families that have a child or a family member with autism so much so that you're working with one arm. Where where, like, how did that start for you? What was your first connection to the, the world of autism?
0: It was a really beautiful experience and memorable experience with really positive and robust outcomes. So, and it happened for me when I was 18, 19 years old. It was the late 90s, early 2000s. Wow. I, was, um, I was enrolled in my undergraduate program in elementary education. I knew since I was about three. I guess, that I wanted to be a teacher. I (laughs) really enjoyed learning, um, and I think I had some really great, caring, compassionate instructors in my life. Around middle school, high school, I had some not so great, and I really felt like I wanted to teach in the elementary level. And there was a flyer that said, we're looking for someone to work part-time with our son in in the educational hall, the wing of of our building at school, and it said he has autism and we will train you to do applied behavior analysis uh, based off of low boss. That's pretty much what it said. But the thing I remember was that it had this really adorable boy with blue eyes and a snowsuit. And I thought, wow, this kid looks like an incredible person. Like he looks so adorable and approachable and yeah. loving and caring like I I wonder what this means. Like, I had never heard autism. I had no idea what ABA was. The Behavior Analyst Certification Board that that certifies behavior analysts didn't exist yet or was just forming. So, you know, it's also incredible to think that a child in West Virginia was diagnosed 20 years ago at the age of two. The average age of diagnosis now is still four in the United States. Right, that's incredible. uh, Yeah, the statistics I saw were a few years old, but it was double you know, um, a decade or two later, but we, I went to a professor of mine, the director of the program, and I asked her what is autism? What is uh, behavior analysis? And she said she was really dismissive. And she said that mm-hmm. autism was like down syndrome and, and all, she kind of inferred that all disabilities were kind of lumped together. And I found that really unsatisfying as a response. And so I, and she said some disparaging remarks about BF Skinner. And, and I was just like, well, she just seems really negative. So right. I made the the decision to meet the family. I just, I pulled the, the phone number off of the flyer and I called them. And when I went and met them, they were so caring and so wonderful and so sweet. I thought, well, whatever this is, whatever we need to do, we'll figure it out together. And I think it was that first experience that was really formative about why, not why autism is important to me so much, but why the parents are are literally my favorite people. Um, and and I don't think that people should have to struggle this much to access information that could really significantly improve their lives. And that's why with with my website in particular, it's continued to grow. And there's an entire section dedicated to just caregivers with probably 15, pages that that you can drop down and um, I I often like to say that they're they're my favorite people because you don't have to contrive an ounce of their motivation you know it's amazing what parents right. will do for their children
1: <laughs> right so that's it I mean so so on point I mean families are motivated all all parents are motivated to really Give their children the best that they can and give them in a lot of ways more than what they had as children and give them more access to more opportunities and let them discover and explore the world and what a great way what a great way for people to do that but that comes with challenges right so what are what are some of the barriers that families are facing right now
0: well I, I think the barriers right now are compounded with the pandemic of course and the mm-hmm closing of schools or the limited access to in-person instruction, I think that, that it magnified a lot of the challenges that our community faces, uh, and it did present a few new <laughs> challenges as well, of course. Right. I think for many families what tends to be the most healing aspect for them is to surround themselves not always, with everything, you know, related to autism, but to make sure that they are connected with the community because there is this sort of relief that can occur when you just see somebody and you don't have to explain certain things to them and you can just sigh or exist together. That can be really helpful. Um, The barriers that exist for families accessing services can be delayed in diagnosis, a delay in finding a, a reputable provider or, or finding one in the area, let alone one who is considered high quality or best suited to that child or family or the adult who they might be working with. A lot of access to services are limited to the autistic population exclusively, which is not the intention of any uh, medical service or educational service. You know, we look at speech and language therapy. They do not just work with patients who've suffered strokes. They work with people with apraxia and other language um, mm-hmm. Barriers as well. So, there's still a lot of those kind of basic things. I think you know we fought for a long time to access insurance coverage. It it is covered now in all 50 states as of 2019. Uh, mm-hmm. It took eight, 18 years Sorry. to accomplish that. Yeah, woo hoo! I mean, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Like we should applaud that for sure. And I think you know it created its own challenges and. I've learned a lot, and I think what I love to do is I love to take really complex information. Um, For some reason, I find it really reinforcing to learn, and then my goal is to translate it as best as I can. I'm not an attorney, um, but I do have an educational background. I am licensed as a behavior analyst in the state of Hawaii. I have been in the field of education for 20 years, so I think I can provide um, a lot of important information and synthesize that for families. But I also tell parents, teachers, everyone, you know, don't just take my word for it. I might be an expert, right. but I'm only one. So I'll definitely love to get people to the original resources as well.
1: Yeah. What a shift for you to go from helping one family uh, just out of sounds like a lot of curiosity and wanting to support that family uh, to advocating for a whole state and multiple states uh to get autism-related services covered by insurance. That's a a pretty drastic shift uh, from what I can see. What prompted that over the course of your career? What prompted you to go from really being the clinician to making sure that families can access a variety of clinicians?
0: You know, it was all just stuff in between, right? It was going Mm -hmm. through my graduate program, my doctoral program, which I did at Simmons University in Boston. I had access to incredible professors and mentors there as well. Um, Dr. Susan Ainsley, Dr. Dave Palmer, Dr. Dave Lennox, Ron Allen, um, and others as well as Katherine Johnson, who I know has been on your, your show as well. So I think yep. it was, they maintained my excitement and my curiosity, which again, I've kind of always had with learning in general. But when I, when I just see that there's some parts of the science that are just so simple, they're so simple. They're not common sense necessarily, or, or maybe they feel that way once we wrap our heads around them, and, it's, it, and it can be life-changing. So why not? I mean, I'll help as many families as I can, and I had a really good friend, Dr. Mary Barbera, tell me you're probably not best going to do that with door-to-door or one-on-one ABA yourself. And mm. um, somewhat unintentionally, through Behavior Babes' popularity over the years, it's given a platform and a voice and a mechanism for me to reach a lot of people. And when, we, when I was in Massachusetts, again, a lot of well-trained, immersed in a really active community, a very invested community, um, and a very affluent area. So you, you kind of got the best of the best of the best. And I then wanted to move to Hawaii because I was done with New England Winters. And I had finally okay. finished my, my doctoral program, which felt like it would never end. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go somewhere, but also somewhere where I feel I can be helpful. I, I felt helpful in New England, but at the time, almost now seven years ago, I, I was one of two thousand behavior analysts. I came to Hawaii, and there was, you know, less than a hundred. So. Right. It, It was definitely a place of need. And in Massachusetts, I had had some great exposure to experts like Amy Weinstock, you know, who trained gave models and showed what it was like to testify, took the mystery out of going to the state capitol, made it easy, provided a model. And when I came to Hawaii, I thought, oh, cool, I'm going to do that with those with people here, too. And I realized, like, Hawaii did not really have, you know the equivalent and the robustness. And it's hard to get people to go to the Capitol and advocate for services when there's less than a hundred behavior analysts trying to provide services to the families who can access it. And I appreciate being a national and international, you know, figure, but I also found it personally um, heartbreaking that my neighbors and the members of my community couldn't access services. So there was no insurance access in Hawaii when I um, lose care. There was not licensure for behavior analysts. And now we have that. We also have Medicaid funding occurring, um, which is wonderful. We have an expansion of adult services in the Department of Health with access to behavior analysts and registered behavior technicians. And we were also the first state to... Uh, emphasize that when an individual accesses these services, they must be licensed no matter what four walls you are within. So if that's at a hospital and they're receiving access to ABA services, which often does not occur in hospital settings, but it can, then it would need to be by a licensed behavior analyst or a registered behavior technician. And the same was true for our public schools. So uh, it's been a way for me to blend my educational background with my passion for behavior analysis and helping families
1: yeah i mean you've you really i know left a tremendous impact on the hawaii community and and the families certainly tell you know you told us kind of what some of the outcomes were but what what were some of the steps you had to take and and how did you how did you kind of leave that impact i mean it sounds like it was a lot of conversations with legislators and and working with folks as they were addressing public policy but tell us what that looked like
0: it can be a very intimidating process. And so the, <laughs> really the beauty is that there were several people. Now, there wasn't hundreds and hundreds of people, but there was a core group. And so I wasn't doing it alone. And even if we didn't have a roadmap, we were figuring it out together. And that main connection for us was our state ABA association. And it was primarily it was all volunteer members about – I want to say seven or eight of us who you know petitioned our employers to give us time off or started our own uh, part-time or contracted work so that we could have flexibility with our schedules. We communicated with our clients about what was happening, and they wanted other people to access the service their children were accessing. At the time, it was primarily um, military, so tricare covered access to ABA services. So that meant that just by geographic limitations, pretty much every behavior analyst lived on only one island. And there are eight islands, but five main islands. So that's obviously problematic. And, of course, there's, um, you know, lack of physicians here as well, di- you know, individuals who can diagnose our, our community and our children in need. So there are limitations just being in the middle of the ocean anyhow. And what has right. been really interesting <laughs> is... Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations with legislators. We had advocates, self advocates, go to the Capitol. You know, nothing's really more compelling than just going right to the source. Here are my needs, Great. here's my challenge. And of course, not every individual with autism can articulate that, uh, but the beauty is in how it's articulated by those who choose to go. And at our state capitol and in Hawaii, we had a, a individual, I want to call him a boy, but he's, he's a young man now. And his name is Luke Pinot. And uh, he started going to the capitol when he was, I don't know, 10, 11. And the insurance passed and it covered children up to age 14. He turned 15 like a week later and the law was named after him, but he couldn't access those services. So, it's that personal story that compels you to then keep fighting or to keep advocating right. because what we got was awesome, but it wasn't enough. And so having some success has been a part of why I keep going. <laughs> it's not all, yeah. you know, rainbows <laughs> and turtles and, and uh, palm trees, but also the beauty around you, the beauty around me um, really helps through the, the harder parts of the process. It's very grueling. It's very time consuming If you don't have money or if an organization doesn't have money, then you're going to be doing a lot of grassroots efforts because you're not going to be necessarily Mm -hmm. accessing lobbyists. It can be challenging. It can be overwhelming. But just like we would tell a family who's working on uh, so many behaviors to target or so many skills to help their child acquire, we say, let's pick one. Let's start small. Let's define it. Let's break it down and let's see what the barriers are. You know, let's assess it and then let's, rearrange the environment to try to get a different result and access reinforcement. So what has been really neat is to stretch my brain on what I know about behavior analysis and use that to help us within the public policy arena. And then it extended beyond autism. I got interested in like sustainability and reducing single use plastic and was able to participate a little bit easier because of the relationships we acquired
1: along the way. Well, you just didn't have enough going on all at once. You wanted to just add to the project. No, I'm I'm, I'm teasing. Look, <laughs> no, it's just it's it's incredible that there's so much um, you know, and and the thing that I find inspiring is it's not like you went to school to become a public policy person or a legislator or a lobbyist. It was really skills you had to learn along the way and you know, I think what it comes down to is you were dedicated to talk to people and you were dedicated to advocating for families who maybe couldn't advocate or didn't have a voice or didn't have a vehicle to be heard um, and really bringing that to people who needed to hear them and needed to hear about them and make changes so that they could get supported.
0: You know, I think sometimes also it's the fact that I've experienced success. I know what effective Hmm. services look like. I know that some individuals can be considered indistinguishable from their peers in a way that they view as positive for themselves. I know also that if a child doesn't get services, it's going to be harder for them to navigate their world and for society to support them as they age. And having had experiences where I've seen adult and have worked in adult residential placement, have worked in preschools, uh, really the only place I've had limited work is early intervention, like below age two. Um, and I think that's often because children are not diagnosed or identified as having those learning needs as, as often at that age. And yeah, it's, it's about giving other people, I like to say a, a microphone or a megaphone. You know, I, I can speak for or summarize or share what I understand the community's needs to be. But like I said, it's really more important for me that people are contacting and seeing directly. And when they meet somebody like Luke, Luke is one individual. He represents himself, but he also became a face, a person, a story. I mean, he is all of those things, but to our legislators, it made what families and individuals experience really, really real. And also now we've continued to be at the Capitol because we've had challenges or people want to make changes. And so we've had sustained conversations now for about five years with our legislators and they're seeing progress. And growth and change And parents are reporting that And that's really I think reinforcing their behavior You know as well
1: Yeah absolutely And you know the the group Is, is growing right they're aging And they're coming up I would imagine They're pre- being presented with new challenges uh, You know sounds like Luke may be Entering the job force at some point right He's going to have different challenges there than he had in the home Than he had in school and so legislation and the involvement from that community needs to adapt really with it and for families that are out there having these conversations and for clinicians and other professionals keep going you know we need this we need this support for our young ones as they become young adults as they become family members and and have their own children at some point Um, keep going I think is the is the only thing I really want to say Because I, it's so easy to say I left a voicemail, I called them They didn't want to hear from me And we showed up, it was closed We tried and now we're done But it's the opposite that needs to happen We left a voicemail, they didn't call back Let's try again, let's keep going
0: I like to joke with our legislators sometimes Because they'd be like, oh it's Amanda again Or they would start saying like Autism, right? <laughs> and I'm like, maybe we could say <laughs> aloha instead and I, I would joke with them, like, hey, if you, want us, if you want me to go away, if you want all of us, this gaggle of, of people coming to the Capitol, if you want us to go away, like, just, you know, uphold the law, do what's right, and we'll just see you at the beach, right? Like, aloha, yeah. negative reinforcement. Apply what we right. know the removal of an aversive, to increase behavior in the future. No problem. I think the hard part is, well, there's many hard parts, but it's the persistence over time. It's the fact that Mm. for our families and our communities and for our providers is a constant battle. We're battling with a school district. We're battling with an insurer. We're battling with, you know, whatever. And I don't mean like we're fighting. We might just be conflicted. We might have a different uh, opinion. We might have to follow a very difficult process. You know, if things become too effortful, providers are also going to say like, look, I I can't take that insurance. And that's the opposite of what we want to have happen because we advocated for that access. So if it's not really allowing people to access the services, then it's not what is intended. It's not the intention of the the law. And I, I have to mention the autism law summit, which is an event that happens every year in the fall. And at the law summit, it's not a conference. It's a conversation. And it's created and originated with like 5, 10, 15 parents. They passed around like their ball cap at one of the first meetings and all ordered pizza. And now it's, you know, 300 people potentially uh, at the event. And what's great about it is they bring legislators, they bring department of insurance, they bring lawyers. And we start looking at national trends. And when you see a national trend, like, oh, they're saying children can only have access until age, fill in the blank. Georgia was age 6. Other states was age 8. Massachusetts had no age or dollar cap. Hawaii had age 14. And what we found is as you, you know, you get the insurance and now all the states have the insurance, you start looking at those age caps and go, you know, that's wrong. Not only is it wrong, is it a violation of something else? And you start looking at mm-hmm. federal legislation, not just state, And you're not doing it alone. (laughs) There are lawyers and legislators and advocates and parents and attorneys, all of them in the room together with the providers. And I learned about something called mental health parity, which very Mm -hmm. simply means you don't have a cast cut off of your leg because you turned 15 today. And the law says you can only have that until you're 15. The cast comes off your leg when the doctor has determined your bones have healed. Same thing should be true for any mental health condition. So when I when I kind of learned that and started having just even that formula, it changed and helped us better in Hawaii locally advocate and to instruct or inform agencies of their rights and their clients' rights. And then you end up with a uh, a group of people who have a voice, who are having a very similar voice. And again, we don't want to like negotiate rates together as a group, you know, there's there's laws around that too. Right
1: there, the <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: The antitrust laws, but we, but we should be collaborating and sharing information, and um, I think parents are a critical part of that. You know, their voice is the most powerful voice, but I just want to say to parents, like, I'm sorry that you always have to be, you know, exercising that voice. It's exhausting. And I want to I wanna create systems and opportunities that assist families with that and make it easier for them.
1: And is that where you're spending your time now? Is that where you're spending a lot of your um, current time and and expertise?
0: Yeah, I really find it very reinforcing. And a a friend of mine who's an attorney, Dan Unum, he said to me, program yourself more access to reinforcement. And it was hilarious because I hang out with a lot of behavior analysts, and it's an attorney talking to me in ABA talk. And he was the one who said, you know, if – if there's not enough joy in what you're doing, it, it's going to essentially lead to burnout or what we would call an ABA ratio strain, too thin of a schedule right. of reinforcement. So for me, when when the progress or the outcomes might be a while, it's really important to find what's rewarding along the way and helping parents. Mm-hmm. Like again, they're invested. They're going to try. They're going to implement. They're going to. Change. I'm not working as a behavior analyst primarily in the state. I do do con- consultation and things outside of Hawaii. Well, within the state of Hawaii, I really focus on advocacy and helping families navigate some of the public school systems and how that might interact with children, um, perhaps, you know, or primarily with autism, but also other disabilities. I do a lot of work with a nonprofit that I co founded, which is called Together for Our Keiki. And that's K-E-I-K-I, but in Hawaiian, it translates um, to children, so together for our children. And um, that's a few other behavior analysts, the psychologists. We have parents, and we have uh, even behavior technicians, people who are educators on our board. We wanted to have a diverse board. It started with wanting to help parents understand the intersection of our licensure law with access and their rights at schools. But now it has really transformed into collaborating with speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, like I said, psychologists, and making sure that we see families supported in all of these areas and arenas. And I don't have expertise directly in all of those areas right. like just yet. <laughs> so You'll I get definitely there. think it's, it's the network and the partnerships that we create that allow us to still contribute uh, in a collaborative way.
1: So with all this that you're doing, right, together for our key uh, your advocacy, um, your conversations with public policy initiatives, what's your, what's your hope for the field of behavior analysis and for those families in the next, you know, five, ten years or so?
0: I did a talk recently where I looked at the review of not just Behavior Babe of the last ten years, but of our field of behavior analysis and of society. You have to layer all of that together. I think what we're going to see is, you know, um, hopefully more attention to some of the social and racial inequalities, especially as this pertains to our population, meaning that individuals who are black or who are persons of color uh, receive much even longer delays in diagnosis and access to treatment. There's a disproportionate amount of individuals and persons of color who are, uh, you know, in special education, that maybe mm-hmm. are there for things not related to what would be considered specialized needs or not due to having access to effective instruction or maybe culturally sensitive instruction. I also, though, really want to mention that when I was doing that review back, thinking back, the theme throughout, the most critical piece of dissemination or the best thing that anyone can really do to maintain and grow the field and the support and the access is to provide high-quality services. So when we have a rapid increase in the number of professionals, that doesn't mean we have a bunch of non-quality providers, but it means we have an opportunity to deviate from some level of standardization, and it might be really, it is really important to look at that. I want families to know that they have choices in providers, and maybe they don't today, But that's what I want to keep advocating for so that they're just like if they find a physician who is not the right doctor for them or maybe doesn't have bedside manner in a way that they can receive, then they can go to another physician or another surgeon or another diet, you know, dietitian. I want to also create that robustness that families would have the ability to choose. And I want to continue to support and collaborate and brainstorm with our community of providers as to how can we all continue to have a focus on high quality clinical care while still managing all the other stuff we now have to do, like, you know, speaking to insurance companies and writing very, very, very long avows that we're not necessarily reimbursed for. So I feel for everybody and I know that we're all really doing, I think the best we can do. And I just want to see us create systems where we can continue to do the best we can do and become better together,
1: right, and at the crux of all of that, at the center of all of that is really that quality of care and quality services. you know if 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 services aren't quality, then you won't see this, the right gains, then we'll see different behaviors you know, come up and then the, the legislation folks will say, well, there's really not this game. Look, there, these students aren't being aren't benefiting from this service. And then the insurance companies will say, Oh, well, we're going to cut the funding because you haven't made the progress you were supposed to make. And so at the root of all of that, when you boil it all down, we've got to be, we've got to be training our future clinicians to be quality clinicians and work collaboratively with families To support them and their initiatives and their needs uh it's not just what we think we based on what we learned in a book it's got to be us coming together with the families and saying what are the challenges you're seeing and how can we help you and how can we help you when we're not here right the parent education piece is a is a pivotal piece in all this um but it comes down to we got to make sure that our clinicians are providing quality services
0: yeah 100 percent for sure and I think there's some really great advances that are making that possible. And as we grow, people are able to share more. So, for example, Mm -hmm. the Autism Partnership Foundation, who I have no affiliation with officially, but they have recently announced that they are offering the registered behavior technician 40-hour course for free forever for life. So if that was a barrier, which it has been a barrier for many people, is just accessing that course or you know, feeling pressured to work at a potential place of, of employment, or parents maybe want to get the knowledge but didn't want to pursue the competency, now everybody can. And I think that right there is the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say collaboration and quality and change and community. So I think it's a perfect example of what I hope we see more of in the future.
1: And I know a lot of that is available, and not necessarily the RBT coursework, but a lot of resources and articles and information and videos are available on your websites. Can you tell us about the different websites you have and, and where we can find you and, and tap into your wealth of knowledge?
0: Yeah, of course. So the website I originally created was com. It really, really rolls off the tongue. Um, it, it's just for <laughs> – <laughs> yeah – it's good for applied behavior analysis in Massachusetts and it was free web. So dot com was the free hosting site. Once I had the name behavior, babe and it kind of stuck and took life into this whole other um, persona. I changed the website address to www.behaviorbabe.com. And some people will say, is that a professional name? Is that a scientific name? And I'll say, you know what? It's a memorable name. People remember it. Mm-hmm. They can, they can mm-hmm. recall it. So Essentially, at the website, what I now have is sections for advocacy. I have a whole drop-down section because, like you said, I never never went to school for this, but here I am, and so let me share that information. There's a section for students of behavior analysis, for behavior analysts, and for caregivers. But I want to emphasize that you should not let any heading on my website deter you. It's just a way to try to categorize the depth of information so that it doesn't overwhelm anybody who goes to the main landing page. Um, But I encourage you to jump into any other section because it's kind of hard for me to even say this is a so-and-so's resource um, for some of the topics. And then outside of the website, it's Facebook. I'm I'm told if you're almost 40 or over, that's where we're at. And if you are younger than that, (laughs) Um, I'm not discriminating. I'm just trying to say that I'm, I'm learning as I age that there are other platforms that are hipper than me. And so things like Instagram, obviously, uh, there's, I'm not on TikTok, but any of the social media platforms, if you want to look for me there, it's always under the name Behavior Babe. So
1: We will post all of those in our show notes for, for families and for clinicians who want to see, but I think it's also fair to say that a Google search of Behavior Babe will pull up each one of those um, which is, you know, also also equally is available to everyone. Um, Dr. Kelly, thank you so much uh, for your time today and 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 really for all the work that you've done for Hawaii and for places around the world and, and different states across the country. It's definitely great to see that those that your efforts are leaving a lasting change on on various communities. So thank you for that and thank you for your time today.
0: I want to really thank you, Richie, for having me, but also. For the way that you articulated that, I, I was recently sharing with another friend of mine who has been in the field that we leave an impact on, on people every day. All of us do. And we often just don't hear about it. We just don't know what it is. And if we do hear about it, it's usually from someone who didn't didn't like the impact we left. We don't always mm-hmm. hear that gratitude. And so it is something that I I try to make sure I tell people all the time when I appreciate them. And so I appreciate that you said that. and. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I really enjoy, um, you know, accessing your listeners and and learning more about um, the community and the connections you're creating by checking out all the other episodes on the show. So thanks.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Aloha. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Dr. Amanda Kelly, Behavior Babe. Uh, As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or feedback, please send us an email at com. And you can always subscribe and rate us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode
0: of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.